moving your career further faster. That's the mission behind Cascading Leadership. Each week, we're bringing you stories of women, immigrants, members of the global majority who have risen to the ranks of senior leadership in the world of business. Get ready to gather the insights of some of the world's best business leaders and apply those to your career. If you're interested in sales and marketing effectiveness, organizational effectiveness, talent strategy, DEI, or HR tech, tune in. We're going to share with you what they don't teach you in business school. Welcome to the show. Welcome to today's episode of Cascading Leadership. I am your friendly neighborhood talent strategy nerd, Dr. Jim. And I'm specifically over enunciating that just to irritate my co-host, who is... Lawrence Brown, otherwise known as LB, your executive research and reading coach. Mine is much more agile and you ripped yours off of mine, so no no I points did. for originality. <laughs> We're here for another episode, and we have a phenomenal story ahead. So joining us today, we have our featured guest. Say hello, featured guest. Hello, I'm Tessa Carey. Nice to meet everyone. Thanks for joining us, Tessa. It's going to be a super interesting conversation, and as per usual, I'm I'm super excited to have our featured guests on, and we're going to go a lot of different directions in the conversation, and at the end, we'll have some critical takeaways that our listeners out there can go ahead and bring into their own leadership journeys and own career journeys and move their careers further faster. Tessa, tell us about who you are and what you're up to. I have been in the talent space in HR for a lot of years, maybe 18 years. So I don't know if I'm, if I would categorize myself as a talent nerd, Dr. Jim, but I do love talent. I love the learning and development space. I really enjoy seeing the light bulb come on for people. And so that's what I've been doing most of my career. I'm going to dub the talent nerd because you have six letters on the back end of your name. So that makes you a talent nerd. Countess, Countess Tessa Carey, talent nerd. Oh, that just rolls right off of the tongue. That's that's fantastic. So obviously we're, we already know we're going to have a lot of fun talking about nerd things. I'm not even sure why LB's even here. Looking forward to a great conversation and you have some significant responsibilities in your current role and you've had significant responsibilities in the last several roles that you've been in. But before we get into the scope of your responsibilities and the impact that you're driving in those roles, I want to start at the beginning and build that story that leads up to where you are now. Tell us a little bit about how it all began. I'm a military brat. My my father was in the Air Force for 26 years. I was born in Shreveport, Louisiana on Barksdale Air Force Base and just moved around a whole bunch early early in my years. I have a younger brother who was born 4 years after me in Germany while we were in Germany and while I was there my parents gave me some really great experiences, made sure I got introduced to the culture of Europe specifically. So they took me to Paris. They took me to the UK. We spent a lot of time around Germany. They took me to Holland and took me to the tulip fields. And they and my mom was very interesting because she always had to dress me in the garb of where I was. So when we were in Paris, she had put, had me in an all black outfit with a black beret. In Holland, she had me in the little dress with the clogs on. It was like a clog that you could put over my tennis shoe. So I just have all these pictures of me and all these, to me, were very exotic places and just wearing the garb of the country. 
and learning about other things outside of my little bubble. How do you think that exposure to multiple cultures domestically and internationally had an impact much later on as -hmm. you were growing up? I feel like it had an impact on me, especially when we came back to the United States and I was around kids who had grown up in the same house and had always been in the same house. We moved back to the United States, I guess, when I was seven or so. And where we lived, those individuals had lived in that place their entire life. They were born there. Some of them actually that I know still live there. And so I think it's helped me as I've gotten older because I understand different cultures. I understood how Americans were seen, at least back then, how African-Americans were seen back then. I remember a specific experience where we walked up to a restaurant and I think we were in, I think we were in Paris and the mater d' was really not nice. And then my dad started speaking English and he said, oh, American. And he like got really nice and was like, oh, let me take you to this table. And It was just, it was, it was weird. And as a young kid, even I noticed it and I was like, dad, why was he so mean? And my dad was like, oh, Americans are, Americans are seen differently here. And so, and he just left it at that. It's interesting you describe your Paris experience because my wife and I were in, in Nice. This Mm -hmm. was several years ago and I, I'm a big soccer fan. So every new city that I go to, I tried to go buy the soccer jersey. And my experience was similar in some respects to yours in Paris, except I walked up to somebody and I had the Nice jersey on my phone. And I asked him, where do I find the store to buy this? And he just (laughs) walked away. And I was like, oh, okay. So when you're finally stateside and navigating childhood and your teen years, what were the things that you started noticing about those dynamics, your experience growing up, what were the things that stood out during that period of your life? So I would say initially when we came back to the States, I didn't, the only thing that I noticed is that other children didn't move around like I moved around unless they were military kids. So I noticed that pretty quickly. But when I was around 15, we moved to Atlanta and my experience in Atlanta was much different than any experience I'd ever had. I'm generally a friendly person. I was able to make friends. I was always able to be very social and hang out and do all those things, regardless of who I was around. But when I moved to Georgia, I started to have these odd experiences. And it started first in high school. So I'm a sophomore. I'm new. I don't know anybody. And like I said, I'm generally friendly. So I'm walking around and saying hi and trying to talk to people and I'm getting these reactions and the reactions did not make me very happy. It was like, nobody wanted to talk to me at first. I didn't think anything of it. And so a couple of weeks in these things to start continuing to happen. And one day I just broke and I went home and I was just in tears. And my mom was like, what is going on? What is wrong? Did somebody say something to you? Did something happen? And I was like, nobody wants to talk to me. I was like, I talked to the black kids and they are saying things to me like, why do you talk white? Or why do you think you're better than us? Or this kind of weird stuff. And I'm like, I don't think I'm better than anybody. I was just saying hi. And then I would talk to the white kids and they wouldn't talk to me at all. They were just like, "Eh, sorry, don't want to deal with it and would move on. And so my mom literally had to sit down and talk to me about what was happening because I just didn't understand. I didn't have those experiences as a military child because everybody was different. 
In the military, it's more about rank than race. My dad's a captain and your dad's just enlisted, that kind of stuff. So I just had never had any of these experience before. And so it was very difficult to me. And my mom just said, look, here's, here's what's going on. And she talked to me about the race stuff and how African-Americans are sometimes seen. And that kind of started really my whole journey because my mom has been very pivotal in my journey and very, I don't even know what the word is. She was just, she was very open and honest about the experiences that she had. And then would talk to me about how that's going to affect me going forward. You're touching so many things, but when, have you ever had a conversation with your parents around, because I think it's pretty fascinating how, when you traveled, you were inserted into the experience. And then when you came to the U.S., there was the whole idea and notion of having to have the conversation around race. Was there any conversation about the intentionality of why she put you in the different cultures as you experienced them? And then when you came to the U.S., having to have the conversation about not really being in that middle between two worlds? There was no conversation about the experiences overseas. But as I got older, she began to reveal why she wanted me to experience things because she wanted me to have opportunities that her and my dad just wouldn't have had. And we were overseas. It's cheaper to travel while you're over there. And so they took advantage of that and made sure that I had all these really fabulous experience because they wanted me to know that there was just, there was more than, there was more than what I just saw every day. There was more out there. They just wanted to make sure that I was exposed and had the opportunity to see that. So you, def- you definitely asked, a- answered the question because that's what I was thinking as I heard the story. And obviously, looking ret- retrospectively is different than having going through the experience. But I would imagine, which is so much fun having uh, guests on the show because we get to do that, right? Insert ourselves into what your story is to pick apart what some of these things are. And it sounds like that she was really planning for you to have this rounded sense of uh, thinking. And we do that as parents, right? We try to mm-hmm. our, as, do our best to project into the into our the, the lives of our children to help them to grow and then go out on their own. When you came to the U.S., and I really identify with what you were saying because I remember when I first came to the U.S. and we lived in a largely African-American community and we weren't, we were not that well accepted. Then I moved to Evanston, Illinois, where we were, we moved into a predominantly white community and yeah, we didn't, no one was out front in a parade saying welcome. And (laughs) in my origin story, I talked about having where I created what your experience was abroad by having friends that were from all over the place. Mm -hmm. Then as I started to get a little older, then it started to shift into more of the, of the African-American community and acceptance for lack of a better description. So after the conversation, what happened next with your evolution? I really was clueless, which I know is odd to say, but I just really had none of, I just didn't, there was no context for me because race was never really a thing in my life up until 15, which I know is extremely odd to say. But once I understood what was going on, my, my mom was just like, you know what, find your people, find people who are like you. And so I ended up finding some very good friends. They are my friends to this day. One of them was from New York City and she had moved down to Georgia. So imagine the culture 
shock. She was from Brooklyn and moved to Jonesboro, Georgia. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it was really a culture shock for her. And then another friend of mine who was also a military brat, her dad was in the military as well and had retired and come to Atlanta like we did maybe six months before, before we got there. And so those ended up becoming my people. And they helped me get through those two years of high school and One of them actually went to the University of Georgia with me and we were there together. The other one went to Georgia Tech. Very smart. And those became my people. And I just heard her saying that to me. And so every circumstance I was always in, I just tried to find my people. I had a similar experience. So I'm an immigrant. Obviously, I'm not not Black or African-American or Bahamian-American. But I was stuck in the same spot. Like other brown people my shade thought that I would be Latino of some sort. Yeah. And I am who I am and I just fit in everywhere, but I was never really in like deep in any one place. I think your advice, what advice would you have to people that just don't feel like they fit in anywhere? You just took it, find your people, find the people that get you. And it's interesting that you mention it because it ties into kind of a lot of what I do as a professional is that I talk about building an attraction model for the people that get you. Uh Uh, And I teach that to people that are on my sales teams. What are you passionate about? Put that out in the world and you build the attraction model for people that gravitate towards those things that you're saying. And that's how you bring people in. So it's great advice. You navigated high school, you navigated all the stuff that uh, typical high schoolers do Mm -hmm. at a different lens than high school students have when they're navigating through this, now comes the decision on what college to pick. And you hinted at some of those pathways when you're talking yeah. about ugh, Georgia Tech. It, it, it's interesting. I, I want to draw some contrast in mainly to, to troll LB a little bit. So LB went the historical black college route. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, he happens to be a fan of a university that shall not be named in this conversation, mainly because I don't want to. I knew it was coming. They know when, but I knew it was coming. <laughs> in the interest of trolling LB, how did you come to the decision to go to University of Georgia over a historically black university? Honestly, I just hadn't had great experiences with other black folks. I- hate to say that, but that's just what it was. And I was like, I don't think I'll make it. I don't think I'll make it in an HBCU. It didn't have anything to do with the I, the quality of education or those conversations that people try to have. My brother went to an HBCU and he got an excellent education. On some levels, I would say it's way better than the one I got, but I just didn't think I would make it around all those people because I just wasn't, I wasn't a part of the culture because I had grown up in around so many different kinds of people. And so I just decided, you know what, I'll go to a PUI. I will go to the University of Georgia. I was a homebody as a child. So I always wanted to be close to my parents. So it was only an hour and 15 minutes from Atlanta. And so I was like, this is perfect. I'll go here. And I really did have a fabulous experience. I had some stuff, right, happen. But in general, I had a fabulous experience there. So for me, it was just really I didn't think I would fit in and I didn't think I would make it. And so I just decided to go the other route. All those outside conversations about quality of education and all that sort of stuff, in my opinion, it's just BS as far as where you you end up going. So so we won't really get into that part of it. And I understand the reasoning that you went through. But interestingly, you still had to navigate finding your community 
or you're or building your own community within that college experience, which you thought might be a little bit of an easier path. So tell us a little bit about what you encountered and how you built that community around you during your collegiate years. When I got to the University of Georgia, the thing that I encountered first was the Black elite. Atlanta has a lot of rich people. It has a lot of rich African-American folks, a very rich history of it. Doctors, not just not just sports stars or musicians, but doctors, lawyers, CEOs, people who are entrepreneurs, all of these kinds of things. And there's a lot of Jack and Jill, which is an institution for Black elite. There's a lot of those things that happened here in Atlanta. And so a lot of those kids went to all Black high schools that were elite high schools. They lived in these neighborhoods where everybody was Black and everybody had a mansion and everybody had money. And they came to the University of Georgia and they all knew each other because they had already been in those circles. Even ones that had come from other states had, they just know each other. It's the strangest thing I had ever seen. And so they were all very nice to me, but they figured out very quickly that I wasn't one of them. And so nobody was, nobody was rude or mean. It was just like, oh, okay, I'm going to go over here and then you're going to go over there. And honestly, it was fine because I felt a little bit uncomfortable in those circles anyway, because I couldn't talk about the things that they talked about. They weren't my people. I didn't right. have the same kind of experiences that they had. It was fine with me. I also had a lot of racial things happen while I was there. When I went to the University of Georgia, it was, gosh, I don't know, 90% white. And there were people who had gone to that school that literally had never been in a classroom with a black person or a brown person or anybody that did that wasn't white. So I had a lot of those kind of, can I touch your hair? Or I might be walking down the street and somebody call me the N-word or nobody sit next to me on the bus, that kind of stuff. But it was not a lot, but those experiences were very hurtful. And so I just remember them. I remember a particular experience where I was in English class and I had a work study job. I was working for the admissions department and some sort of way we were talking about affirmative action. And the people in the class were like, yeah, that's why a lot of black people are here because affirmative action and blah, blah, blah. And I was just so upset. I was like, I worked really hard to get into this school. I'm not here on affirmative action. You will notice that a lot of my stories have crying in them. I left the classroom crying. I went to my work study job. The lady that I worked for, very nice lady, she was like, what's wrong? Why are you crying? And I told her what was going on. And she said, you know what? Let me just pull a report. So she pulls a report. She blacks out names. She does all this stuff. And she said, you can take this to your class tomorrow. And basically the report pulled everybody who had actually gotten into the school on affirmative action. And there was not one black person on it. It was all Caucasian women. And so I took that and I said, Hey, she gave this to me. This is what it is. And the shock and, and the, this is not real. You made this up. And I was like, no, really, you can go by the admissions office. Here's her name. You can tell her. And all of a sudden the conversation was really different. Affirmative action maybe is not as bad as they thought it was. That for me, was a very interesting experience. I just want to say this because my eyes and my eyebrows went really big when you made the point that people on the list were that that made it in were predominantly or, or all Caucasian women. Mm -hmm. And there's like tons of research that bears that out too. So it wasn't just UGA that happened in. There's tons of studies that are out that shows that the biggest beneficiaries of affirmative action policies has generally not been minorities or people of color. It's actually been white women that have benefited the most 
from that level of access. What Tessa has covered in Jim, what you underscore is that this is why the account must be accurate so that people can make informed decisions and say informed things by understanding what the framework truly is. And so it's a great call out. What came to mind when I, Tessa, when I was thinking about what you were saying is that something that's also very important that you touched on is that, so my son went to, went to a prep school and when he was there, I think out of say 800 or so kids, there were maybe I think it was about 45 who were African-American and full transparency. He wanted to go to boarding school and I felt good about creating that opportunity. And thank God they had scholarship opportunities to help us with that. But one of my concerns was, is that being away at such a young age, I was concerned. And one of the primary issues that came to light for me was, was the issue of race. And so I asked him, I would check in with, how are things going? And so finally one day, and he was like, he said to me something along the lines of, Daddy, are you asking me, am I having racial issues? And I was like, just in general, all the way around. And his response was, Daddy, in this culture, it's not really so much about race, it's about class. So it's really about whether or not he went to a military school and they have an equestrian group. And yeah. so if you're, if you're in the equestrian circle, that's a whole nother, like, amount of cash that yep. you're putting out. So <laughs> that was the pecking order. You knew that group was where it was. And so that your story resonated with me. And I think it's important also for people to hear a couple other things about what you said that I want to tease out is that you were indicating or the, what I pulled from it was black people, no people, which is why Jim and I, one of the reasons we started the show was to help people understand this are a monolith. Yeah. So you're talking about like the black elite. And the reality is that Oftentimes, the elite are the elite. And I don't know if you've ever read the book. It's called So You Want to Talk About Race by Ijeoma Lowu. I haven't read it now. Yeah, but it's a great text for anybody that wants to pick it up. But it talks about one of the elements that you touched on was checking your privilege. And with wealth comes privilege. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes, it really doesn't matter. So there are times where race is the issue, right? There's hands down, no, no question about that because there's no opportunity to, to determine whether or not you are among the wealthy or not. Yeah. But when they're outside of that, to your point about class, it's just, I think it's a beautiful story of understand a group of people that can be expounded upon to everyone that is not necessarily about race all the time. When you traverse through all of that, right? How do you deal with that? Or how did you deal with it? Or have you dealt with it, not being bitter about it. I'm very spiritually grounded. I believe that there is a higher power out there. I believe that our higher power watches out for me, looks out for me, cares for me, loves me, all those kinds of things. And so I just looked at it as these are the experiences that I have to have now so that I can help people later. That's literally, and my mom and dad also helped me with that because I would talk to them about these experiences and my mom would always say, what hurt people? People that are hurting hurt other people. And she said, you just have to, you just have to forgive them and move on. Maybe it's not personal. Maybe they were having a bad day. Maybe they don't know any better, but it was, it would, I'm just very grounded in the fact that what people think of me is less important than what my higher power thinks and believes about me. That's powerful. When you go to the next phase of, of your life, when we start talking about career, how did that move you into the next phase? So my mother actually and my father had a big impact in that as well. 
So early on in my life, my my father would say he didn't like something or I was upset about something and I would just start crying and just, oh my gosh. And, just, and he would say, Tessa, you have to, it's okay to challenge me. Tell me what the problem is. Use your words. Talk to me. Much to my mother's chagrin, because she was just like, these are children and they're going to do what I tell them to do. My dad was like, baby girl, tell me why you're upset with that. Tell me why. And he literally taught me to challenge and to argue and to speak up. And then my mom really focused in on what I guess I call barriers to entry. She never talked to me and my brother about being smart. You got to be so smart. You got to be intelligent. She knew we were smart because they were smart. What she talked to me about in terms of entering the workforce and my brother were the things that she thought would be a barrier for us. So the way that we looked, the way that we behaved, the way that we spoke, all of those kinds of things so that when we went into the workforce, the majority would be comfortable with us and we would be able to matriculate through. And she honestly, for the most part, was correct. She said things to me. She said things to me like, look, you need to speak clearly. You need to speak concisely. You don't stop using these slang words. Don't. She would say things like, don't be too ethnic. And LB, you might know what that means. Just don't be too ethnic as in the way that people see it represented on TV and other places. She is the reason why I have straight hair today. I promise you, I have no idea what my curl pattern looks like because early on, my mom said, look, you need to straighten your hair. You need to, you can't go in there with an Afro. You can't go in there with braids. The whole unprofessional conversation that thankfully is going away now. These are the things that she said to me because she was like, I know you're smart. I know you're going to do well, but I don't want these things to keep you from being able to do what you want to do. Tune in next time for more of this conversation with Tessa Carey. Thank you for listening to this episode of Cascading Leadership. We hope you enjoyed the story as much as we did. Make sure you subscribe to our show on your favorite podcast player. Follow us on YouTube, TikTok, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. Leave us a review. Tell a friend. If you're interested in sponsoring the show, reach out to me at jim at cascadingleadership.com. Tune in next time for another great episode that will help you move your career further faster.